countdown to the last comic shop in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, hey! It is now time for serious talk here on the last comic shop. That's right. We are opening the shop up to newbies to help them find their way underneath this giant comic book tent and graphic novel and other forms of media. That's right. We're keeping the lights on for the oldies that want to level up by uh, reading some of those books that everybody talks about and ends up in the news from time to time, 25, 30 years after its publication, still uh, causing a fuss out there. Well, we hope that we don't cause much of a fuss on today's program. I'm the host with the most, Andy Larson, and I'm joined by Chad Smith and J.A. Scott, as well as the beautiful Nicole Larson, my wonderful wife, who we bring on for uh, these more intellectual discussions here on The Last Comic Shop. So settle in, folks. It is time to bring out our NPR voices. It's so cute that you think that I'm smart. You know who has one of the best NPR voices? I think it's J.A. I think J.A. has one of the best. Our phone lines are open. If you want to call in with your donations, it will go to this totally listener-supported podcast. Uh, (laughs) You can have a chance to receive a tote bag in the mail for just a donation of $100. Phone lines are open. And now it's time for fresh air. You can actually get your tote bags for a lot less. Just go to the merch store. <laughs> That's true. Forget these. You fun really drives. can, and we hope that you do. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But on today's program, it is a promise that we're keeping to a lot of our last comic shop fans. As you may remember, on a poll that JA posted on our Twitter page at Last Comic Shop quite a long time ago, we asked during our review of. Persepolis. Did I say it right this time? All right. Mostly. You had all the letters. During that, we put out a, a, a poll. Basically, we, we gave a lot of other serious comic books and graphic novels that we should check out, and we put it out to our fans. And they overwhelmingly agreed that the next serious book that we should discuss on The Last Comic Shop should be Mouse. So here it comes, folks. The last comic shop's review of this extremely important graphic novel. Pulitzer Prize winning. It doesn't happen very often, except if you're Gary Trudeau and you put out (laughs) Doonesbury. (laughs) Regardless, uh, we're going to be doing Mouse on today's program. What were the uh, other uh, options? uh, I believe it was That Year of the Rabbit. Um, oh, that J.A. had yes. Okay. And then Hey Kiddo, which I had never heard of. Yeah. Um, and then I think the third one was... They Called Us Enemy? They oh, Called Us the Enemy. the Sakai one that I have that I haven't read yet. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, um, yeah, I, 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 we're, we're going to be doing Mouse today. And, and, and before we get into that particular book, as Chad pointed out in the opening, this is a book that's banned a lot. By small-minded people. That's what I. That's what I said. I'm not going to pull any punches on today's program. Banning books is bad, and those people that do it have very small minds and very limited intellects. That's what I'm going to say. But JA's got us a list of I think the top ten most banned well, books of all time, it, or something like that. 
is a top 10. I don't know if it's the definitive top 10. There are a lot of different lists on the internet. Uh, and this is also kind of skewing towards the, an American audience. So it's a lot of U.S. and American books. So we're going to go with this top 10 because it has a nice collection of books that most people have probably read at some point or, as you pointed out, maybe saw the movie. Uh, do you want me to just run down the full list and then we can sort of yeah. pull out some of these books that we I, yeah give us the full list and then we'll go from there okay so 1984 by george orwell the adventures of huckleberry finn by mark twain the catcher in the rye by jd salinger the color purple by alice walker the great gatsby by f scott fitzgerald i know why the caged bird sings by maya angelou Lord of the Flies by William Golding, Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, and To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. Chad, you are a resident teacher on, on, on all of our programs. What do you think of the whole notion of, number one, banning books and then this list? Like, what? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of these books that you've actually taught in school. Heck yeah. And so uh, just before we go too far with the banned book list, each year... Uh, the American Library Association does a lot of great work in bringing light to books that are being banned uh, across the country. You can check that out, the ALA.org, and check out Banned Book Week, which starts September 18th, where they can tell you books that are in the crosshairs for some of these issues. And a lot of times these books uh, are banned for some of the language. Uh, you know, there might be some curse words in there. I remember that was one of the ways I got a kid to read a book. I had a, a 10th grader who had never read a book before in his life. And he was big into, uh, like, the ESPN used to show the poker games. Okay. So I got the, the book, Bring Down the House, which the movie 21 was based off of. It's like, here, this is all about poker. It has a ton of F words. You should check it out. And he did. And I got a kid to read a book. And it was a, it was a win. But a lot of people don't see it that way. And so for things like Mouse, this comes up with Catcher in the Rye. This comes up uh, with so many other things. You know, they have uh, harsh language or depictions of violent uh, events or serious or sad things. Um, or, s or sexual sexual scenes. Se yeah, sexual situations. Is a reality of what actually yes. happened? <laughs> the uh, language yeah. that was actually used when people talked to slaves? You know, what quote, unquote, actually happened during the Holocaust? Moral, moral <laughs> dilemmas, moral issues. Right, and and the the bad part is is you take some of the best books off the table uh, whenever you do that. Like as as an educator, and I, I've taught in high school, I've taught in middle school. To Kill a Mockingbird, which shows up on that list, that was my favorite book to start with, especially as a young teacher, because you cannot screw it up. It is just such a great piece of American literature. And sure, there are notes that you know don't play the same today in today's culture. But those things can be explained and discussed and, and dealt with. And I used to teach Catcher in the Rye to 11th graders. I had such fun teaching that book just because it's all about that angst. And so I remember before we would read the book as a pre-writing exercise, I would just tell the kids, I was like, all right, we're going to turn off all the filters here for a minute. I want you to, for 10 minutes, just free write whatever makes you angry. And I would get these lists, and kids would, it would be the one time kids would be excited about writing in my room. They would turn them in, and I'd pick one or two things off everybody's list, and then print them out. And I would obviously, like, uh, you know, keep the language school appropriate, you know, make sure I was, I was selecting things like that. But I would 
give them a copy of here are the things that make period two mad. And as we'd read through Catcher in the Rye and Holden Caulfield would be complaining about stuff, I'd be like, there it is. There it is. There it is. And it kept the kids entertained. And it also made them into, you know, better readers. They were on the lookout for things then. And so when I was able to show them, hey, look at the words he uses on page 47. Now look at those words that he uses on page 145. And they unlocked kind of the stuff that's in there in the subtext. Like kids actually cared and you could see their minds being blown. But sometimes, you know, it's taking those things that have a little bit of edge to them that have some of those things that I, as a parent, I would agree. I'm not always comfortable with my kids being exposed to that stuff. But as Nicole alluded to earlier, when you're dealing with the real world, like these are things that have happened. These are things that, you know, they might be difficult, but they're worth discussing, especially, you know, in a controlled place like a school or a library or, you know, somewhere where they can have people to talk to about it. Now, Chad, you might know more about this. So, I mean, obviously, when we talk about banned books, it's normally, like, banned by a certain school district, right? Or banned by, like, a certain, like, more local thing. It's not like, you know, there's, like you said, the Library Association isn't banning these books. Is, is that true? It's kind of more school districts? Or who who's banning these books? Yeah, so traditionally, it'll come down in, in a community level. Like, earlier in the year, we had uh, read Persepolis, which was banned in my own backyard where there were parents that were uncomfortable with some of the scenes and, and depictions there and things they thought were being normalized, you know, quote unquote. And I'll be honest. The one thing that it does is turns these books into bestsellers. Yes. Like as soon as a community tries to ban a book, the first thing people do is they go out there and they get that book. Right. They want to read it. They want to see what's up. Yeah, no, it was uh, recently I saw LeVar Burton. I think he was on one of these talk shows. He was showing some outrage about why people banning books and things. And, of course, LeVar Burton reading Rainbow. I mean, we all we all listen to LeVar when he talks yeah. about. Uh, Take a look. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he basically said, you know what? That's what the, the banned books are where you should be reading because that's where all the good stuff is. And I won't lie. When we when J.A. gave this list, two of the books on that list, I can say are probably in my top 10 books of all time. Uh, one of them we reviewed on this show, although in graphic novel form, 1984. The other one, equally as great, is Lord of the Flies. I spent an entire, entire senior year just reading that book three or four times, just simply because I loved it so much. And it's a book that I don't think could be made into a movie. They've tried. And there's yeah. a somewhat okay one that was made in the 60s in Britain, but still, it doesn't have the effect of that book. So, yeah. J.A., do you have a, a particular favorite off this list? I think it's kind of um, funny that 1984 would be banned, since the whole book is about government control of speech. <laughs> um, I read Huckleberry Finn when I was in high school, and... I don't understand why that would be banned. Obviously, it was for the language and sort of some of the coarse portrayals of prejudice in that time. But what I think is lost on the people who banned it is the nuance that Mark Twain was trying to get at. And the fact that these books challenge you. And, and this is a sort of a question to Chad, I guess, you know, because in college, you're used to being challenged. And in high school, I think you used to be challenged a bit. It seems that we've become a society that is afraid to challenge our children, and we want them to be in a quote unquote safe space. But what that ends up meaning too often, or at least it seems to me, is that 
a safe space is a place where nothing can challenge their preconceptions about stuff and they are never brought to task for uh, an idea that might you know they might think is correct that maybe is not correct or or somebody else has a different idea right well it's it's tough in the the world we live in to to know where the lines are and what some people might perceive as being challenging and some others perceive as indoctrination. And as an educator, it's always really tough. You want to make sure that you give uh, a fair shake to issues and you let kids work things out in a way, you know, that's humane. And I think honestly, uh, the pandemic was the first time that a lot of parents were exposed to the things their kids were were reading or talking about because they were there. And they're like, what? Why are you dealing with this? And, you know, as parents, we don't want to see our kids put in situations where that are painful or but at the same time, like kids need to have those experiences. And so people lose sight of it sometimes and their efforts to protect their kids from, you know, all the terrible things out there. They don't give their kids that opportunity to grow, to work through things, to, you know, deal with the messiness that comes with challenging people right. intellectually. To to build up their own armor, you know, yeah. intellectual armor against ideas that they don't like or, or right. that they want to argue back against. And but, to learn a, to think for yourself, sometimes you got to try things on and, you know, try things out and find yeah. what works and find one doesn't. And, and like I said, it can be messy. And walk in other people's shoes, which I think is very important, you know, when you, especially when you're a student, figuring out and, and learning, it helps with empathy, how, how other people live and how other people have experienced the world. And so you talked about walking a mile in, a, in another person's shoes, and that's one of my favorite pieces of advice, especially whenever there's conflict, to walk a mile in, in that other person's shoes, and that way, uh, you'll be a mile away and you'll have their shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like we talked about when we read Persepolis, you know, you can't learn about these things without trying to like literally step in someone's shoes or experience it through their story. And I'm going to get to it later with my recommendation, but there's a quote actually on the back of my recommendation book. It's it's one of those little blurb, you know, praise for whatever book, but it, it talks about how, you know, this book doesn't sh uh, shirk away from, you know, depicting the truth. And it respects the ability of these young readers to handle strong material. So I think that's really important when we talk about kids. And obviously, there's a right age, maybe, and it may be different for different kids, depending on their sensibilities and things like that. But I think we're doing a disservice and like, you know, coddling, we're coddling, our we're children coddling them, much. you know, and it's funny, like, if you actually just answer their questions and things they have this curiosity and then you know it makes it not this taboo thing right it's the same thing with mouse and we're going to talk about the holocaust obviously and you know yeah it's a really tough subject but you know if you just approach it in a very reasonable manner these kids have the capability of of working their way through it and you know they're going to have questions and it's just our job to walk them through it Okay, well, we're going to walk you through a mouse right after these commercial breaks. So make sure that you stay tuned to more Last Comic Shop and more of this fantastic discussion right after these messages. Hi, everyone. I'm Nick Palatichuk. I'm an independent film director and screenwriter. I'm also an independent comic book artist and creator. I want to let you know about my podcast, The St. Paul Filmcast. 
It's a weekly podcast where I interview other independent filmmakers and other artists from the Twin Cities area. You can find the show on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon Radio, as well as our distributor, Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So, if you're interested in how independent films get made or the process of filmmaking, also, if you're interested in other artists' process and works as well, tune in to my show, The St. Paul Filmcast, where it's not over till the guests say it's over. And that wraps up our stimulating discussion on banned books. We now change topics and look at the focus of this week's episode, Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Chad, give us a little bit more background on the book we will be reading and discussing today. Maybe since we're all talking in NPR voices, Andrew will be quieter. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Not like bloody likely. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mouse originally was published in Spiegelman's Raw magazine in a serialized form. And so the books that created Mouse Book 1 originally were there. And then in Book 2, some of those books were published as well in that serialized format before uh, Spiegelman took a break and then finished the rest of Part 2 in the graphic novel itself. But interesting to note, as we talk about this book that won the Pulitzer Prize, it's won Eisner Awards, it's won all the praise, you know, an Art Spiegelman who'd gone on to work for The New Yorker and is, you know, one of the biggest names in American cartooning, also worked on Wacky Packages and Garbage Pail Kids. And were it not for Adam Baum and the other Garbage Pail Kids funding Art Spiegelman and giving him the opportunity to make his comics, you know, without having to worry about financial concerns, uh, we never would have had it. So uh, we have uh, our Garbage Pail Kids to thank for this one. Okay, so Nicole, um, give us a, a 10 cent synopsis of Mouse. So Mouse is autobiographical. Uh, in many ways. So it is taking our author, Art Spiegelman, and he uh, is in you know present time interviewing his own father, who uh, was a survivor of the Holocaust. And he's actually in the process of making this book. And it depicts not only the conversations and the relationship that they have as the father's retelling the story um, and giving art more detail, uh, but then obviously we have the actual story of his survival as well. Now I won't lie, okay. I, I, I liked some of those parts. The fact like he was buying the tape recorder and his dad was like, oh, you could have got a better deal on that tape recorder. One of my favorite parts between him and his dad is when his dad throws out his coat. He's like, here, you can have this windbreaker. <laughs> Why did he throw out his coat? I was Because he thought it was old and ragged. But he didn't and... throw out anything else. He returned half-eaten groceries. True, <laughs> but I think it had more to do with the fact he wanted to be viewed as somebody that took care of his son, and he didn't want his son going around in a ratty old coat. So I think that's why he threw it out in the trash and said, this coat is not worthy enough for my son. This, this windbreaker, this is, this is a better coat. Okay, so Andrew, uh, initial thoughts you, you, outside you, of the coat. You you heard the the whole book is really like 
cartoon depictions of what's going on. So all of the the Jews are mice, and the Nazis are cats, and the uh, the Polish are pigs, and the Americans are dogs. And uh, it's there's a section in which Art Spiegelman's dad and his mom are basically hiding in Poland, pretending to be Polish and not Jewish. And so they're walking around with pig masks. But you can see, like, the line that's attached to the mask to their face. And I just thought, boy, from a visual perspective, it may seem very simple, but how better to, like, show that you're wearing a false face or that you're hiding your identity than just wearing the mask of the other animals. And it's the similar style to those old school Halloween masks that just had the rubber string kind of like stapled on there. I was going to say he carried that motif forward into the second book where he was a human with the mouse face on at the beginning of the book when he's telling how his father had passed and mouse one had taken off and now he's struggling with how he's going to finish the book because the whole first book is sort of the setup of the story and the run up to the first part of the war before they're caught and put into Auschwitz. And then the second book really deals with his father in Auschwitz and and the experiences that he went through in Auschwitz and and also dealing with his father's death. I thought it was interesting too, because I asked Andrew about this while we was reading it, that uh, he also had uh, this mask on while he was talking to his therapist. It is hard to truly, like, try to unmask yourself. You know, we all kind of know the things that we're supposed to say and how, you know, how we're supposed to act, but um, to really remove that mask. So, yeah, even at the therapist, the therapist had a, has a mask, and so does uh, so does Art. This story is so personal on so many levels. You know, whether it's his, Art Spiegelman's relationship with his father, Vladek, whether it is, you know, him dealing with the success of the book. Book two, uh, especially that Time Flies portion, is the part that came out after book one had been released and you you talk about survivor's guilt for the folks that had, had been through world war two and experienced those terrors, you know, now where Spiegelman's put in this position where he's being elevated because of this and basically profiting off of this terrible story that belonged to his father, as he alluded to in earlier books, he already has anxiety. You know, his, his mother had committed suicide. He had had nervous breakdowns. He already has a ton on his plate that he's dealing with. And so now you have this extra guilt of that success heaped on top of him. This is heartbreaking. Yeah, I was going to say that um, his decision to use anthropomorphic animals also, while applauded and lauded in many circles, was not universally praised. There are a lot of literary critics who objected to using animal metaphor because they called it doubly dehumanizing, essentially reinforcing Nazi beliefs that it was one species against a different species. And Harvey Picar even said that his use of animals was potentially reinforcing those stereotypes. He also was not very happy with how Spiegelman portrayed his own father as overwhelmingly negative calling it disingenuous and hypocritical. So to use those animals, and I I guess I open that up to the floor now, what do you think of the use of animals versus telling the story with humans? Well, I'll say this. This was a book in which I had to put it down every like 20 minutes because there was only so much I could emotionally take. I won't lie. 
I'm kind of an anxious guy myself. And this was like, you know, it felt very claustrophobic at times where they were, you know, talking about hiding in certain places and in coal bins and behind this and, and having to walk down the street and people following them. I really felt that paranoia. And so I had to put that book down. And I feel like instead of every 20 minutes, if it had been real people, it would have probably been like every five minutes. The animal cartooning it made it a little bit more digestible, like kind of just putting a little bit of a coating on that that bitter pill that this book you should swallow. But it, it just it, it's hard to swallow. So it's just it's hard on yours on your psyche. And what better way to show how ridiculous it was at the time than like you could make the argument that is this a little bit you know racist or, or classicist or I don't know what the right ist is. Like you, you can make that argument for sure, but when you're dealing with you know Hitler and Nazi Germany and the dehumanizing of the Jews as people, it's such a clear way to show the delineation. And I'll go back to uh, my favorite thing from Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. It, they go back to character abstractions, and the more abstract you can make your character the more people that could potentially relate to what's going on in that character. And you already have a story that's so hard, as Andy was alluding to, so hard to read through. And I actually had uh, the exact opposite experience where when I read this, I read this all within two days. I read book one one day, I read book two the other day, just because that was how I dealt with it emotionally. It was like, okay, this is going to be bad. I'm going to power through and like, that's how I had to do it. You know, this wasn't a book I could stop and put down and ruminate on. Like, like if this were a movie, I wouldn't be able to sit through it. Uh, but because it's able to have that level of abstraction, I'm able to see not only the terrors of Auschwitz, not only the terrors of the Holocaust, not only the terrors uh, that his father and his mother had to live through instead of being so overwhelmed with, you know, disgust and fear and everything else, I, I can power through it because of the use of the anthropomorphic characters, because it's so simplified, yet it's still so, so emotionally powerful. Like the relatability is there, you know, the, the ability to feel empathy for these characters is there, but it, you know, it's like a spoonful of sugar. It puts it in that slightly more palatable form to get the story across. Yeah. I'm, I, I agree. I think, you know, it's something where, I didn't think of it that way, Jay, when I was reading this. Honestly, those criticisms are, are valid, but that's also how it was during the Holocaust. I mean, these groups of people hated each other, you know what I mean? And so I, it, it did kind of take us away from one general humanity into these very specific racist tribes, these, you know, different things. And so I don't have an issue with him using it. I mean, I think it was... Again, as everyone said, it made it more palatable. To be honest, I feel a little guilty. I actually did not have as much trouble reading this as maybe you guys are alluding to. I've read a lot of Holocaust books, you know, novels and things like that. And I feel like I am getting a little desensitized to it. The one part of this that actually caught me, like literally like caught me, had to slam the book shut. But at the beginning of book two, it's kind of dedicated to his younger brother, uh, Richiel, or I'm sorry, his older brother. Oh. He never knew him because he died uh, in the Holocaust. And it actually has the real picture 
of him. And that just completely gutted me for a long time. So yeah, I, that, I, I had a similar book. reaction to the last line in the book. It's one of the, it, where his father's done with his story and he accidentally calls art by his other son's name. He's like, Richelieu, we, we will talk later. It's, it's at his end of his life. And the father is, is in rough shape, but like, he's still thinking about that son that he lost. And that, that punched me in the face among a lot of other things like the oh so you have the whole holocaust story which is terrible and like anxiety inducing but you also have art spiegelman's position he has this brother who perished in the war they they ended up you know to to go long story short as andy would say giving him to another family to i think we're aunts and uncles to hide him during the war and he ended up not making it out of the war but now his older brother is someone that he's never going to be able to live up to the standard of his older brother. Who's, who's this perfect boy. Who's doesn't have tantrums, doesn't do the things that kids do. And like growing up, you know, he had a sibling rivalry with a sibling that, that wasn't there. And how hard would that be on a, on somebody? Oh, it's just on a, a human level beyond all the horrific, big things. It's the horrific little things that really, Oh, they get you. They get me at least. I, I, that was one thing, um, if I can shift the discussion a little bit, that stood out to me because it wasn't just bookending Art Spiegelman's story with his dad's, where it would be Art Spiegelman saying, you know, he starts book one, hey, dad, let's sit down and talk, and then it's just the story. I thought he did deftly weaved in and out sort of modern what's going on with his life, with his dad's life, with the dad's second wife, and sort of there's these weird sort of life as normal, tragic, yet funny moments all throughout, I felt. I mean, the question I wanted to ask is, how did you guys feel about, because yes, it's it's a book about Auschwitz and the Holocaust and, and you know, some very, very terrible things that happened, but it's not uniformly depressing. There are moments of levity. There are moments of comedy. There are moments where I laughed out loud at the writing. I hope I wasn't the only one who experienced that. <laughs> well, I think that's what I was trying to say. Um, I feel like I've been a little desensitized to the Holocaust stories. But what I liked about this book was the modern relationship between Art and his dad. And some of it was hilarious. You know, his dad's such a cheapskate. He wanted to trade it or, you know, return uh, half-eaten food back to the, the grocery store was just by taping up the boxes. I mean, there were really funny moments, but... What was sad to me is that I felt that their relationship was just so not in a good place. I hope by the end it was in a little bit better place, but I honestly didn't feel like it did. I, you know, even at the end, I felt like Art really saw his dad as a burden and um, maybe took him for granted a little bit. I'm not sure if y'all felt that way, but um, I didn't feel that there was like a whole lot of love. It really just felt like oh, I'm kind of obligated to care of this guy and I'm going to write a book about his life. It's So I, I like seeing that, but I was also a little turned off by it. Does that, right. does that make sense? No, I, I agree that there were times, you know, the one thing about his dad, like you could call him like a cheapskate or whatever, but he was molded by this life that he had to live. Like this guy's a survivor. Like that's one of the things you read this book. Yes, there was a lot of like luck that right. that played a big part in him surviving this terrible thing that basically killed most of the rest of his family. 
but at the same time, like you could tell that like he had picked up tools like, you know, hey, I was working in a tin shop and I became a tinsmith. So then I became valuable. So the notion of him taping up a box of cereal and taking it back so that he could get a little bit of extra money back. He was trained that like you don't waste things. You don't take things for granted. And if you can figure out some way of getting a little bit more, it might save you tomorrow. And right. that's that's how he stayed alive. That's yeah, how it, it was it was just such a, a human story where I I don't think Art Spiegelman was looking to make himself look great or look like the hero of anything. It, it's him, you know, dealing with his father who had you know suffered all these traumas, and you know Art who you know he lays clear you know the struggles that you know he's had. And That's very true. So, I'll give him props because, you know, I'm sitting here going, oh, he kind of looked like an a-hole. I mean, he was the author. He could have de- depicted himself in, you know, whatever light he decided to. And so, you know, props to him if that's, you know, really the relationship that he was, you know, kind of open and honest about it, at least. Right. But I, I guess what I'm getting at is we see a lot of the warts and we see a lot of the struggles and we see a lot of, of dealing with trauma and you know, words far worse than that. But there's that love there too, that, you know, he comes back to take care of his father. Like he wants to come for a couple of days and he ends up staying. And like, you know, is that a burden? Yeah. Like, would you complain about that? Yeah, sure. Why not? He's has to pause his life basically to take care of his dad, but it's the love that that's keeping him there. It's the, the, I don't know, just the, the whole humane aspect of dealing with all these different things. And it's not a, a glorified portrayal. It's one of like, this is what the reality was. And even though the reality is portrayed by mice and cats and people with pig masks. And I give his dad a lot of credit because like, honestly, this was a, a son that, there was a lot of traumatic things that happened in, just in their relationship. I mean, not only did you deal with like the Holocaust, but you had the the mother of the relationship take her own life and the effect that it had on both the father and the son in that situation and the guilt that they had, the loss that they had. But at the same time, like these were people that were struggling to connect, right? The son just wants to hear this story just wants to get it down he's very he's almost like methodical and very like to the point like dad stay on topic like i'm writing this book and you have to say it in this order like or people will get lost and all his dad it seems to do at times is just want to talk to his son just wants to have some sort of relationship with his son where like that'll open up the fact that maybe his son will come over and help him fix the roof because He's worried about the roof and his son's not worried about the roof, but he is and he needs help. And so I felt for the dad that, look, he didn't have to talk about these horrific things that happened in his life. He didn't have to share that story, but he did because he wanted to talk to his son. Yeah. And if you're that dad, that's not an experience you want to relive. Like, that's not something you're eager to talk about, you know, the time, you know, when he had to give your son away. But for his son. He does these things for his son. He makes these sacrifices for his son. He brings out the wooden hangers for his son. He throws out that old ratty coat so that he can have a nice coat and present himself. Like he wants to make a better life for his son, but he's also a real pain in the butt to deal with. And that leads <laughs> to some of the comedy that leads to some of the, the, the fun of the book that, you know, helps you to not just be so overwhelmed by all the, the terribility here. 
Okay, well, um, we're going to take a slight break for some commercials, and we will come back with ratings for Mouse and recommendations. Welcome to Victims and Villains. This is the channel where we talk nerd, we talk hope, and we speak nothing else. I'm your host, Captain Nostalgia, and I'm so glad that you're here to join us Victims and Villains is a podcast and YouTube channel that marries pop culture and suicide prevention, producing content with the intent to let people know that there is hope and that there is a better way and that each and every listener has value and worth. Listen to Victims and Villains on your favorite podcast catcher or on YouTube by searching for Victims and Villains. Also, check out their website, victimsandvillains.net. Looking for a podcast all about nerddom? Want a podcast with an emphasis on representation? The Nerd Alternative is the podcast for you. Join me, Ram. Me, Hassan. And me, Levi. Three black British nerds tackling the pop culture we love and sharing why we love them. The Nerd Alternative, a sweet melting pot of all things nerdy. And we're back for the ratings for Mouse. Uh, We like to do a one out of four scale, uh, usually related to the book. And this week... We're going to do one out of four talks with dad. Oh. <laughs> Since the whole book is essentially talks with dad that have been turned into a, a story. So why don't we go to Nicole first? I don't know what is your time. rating? I'm going to give this a solid 3.5. Um, oh. Like I said, I feel like I've gotten a little desensitized to Holocaust books, but this was really well done. Um, I did like that it was more in a way about his relationship with his dad. There was only really one area that like kind of made me a little sick to my stomach. And I'm wondering if that's why some people wanted things to be banned. There was a depiction of like a mass grave and then pouring gasoline over people. And that was maybe (laughs) a little much for me, but, um, but yeah, solid 3.5. It wasn't probably the best Holocaust story I've read uh, ever, but I guess I can compare it to Anne Frank, the graphic novel version of that that I've read, and it, it did deal a lot more with the the concentration camps and things that than that did. But yeah, overall, very solid, well done. Shouldn't be banned because nothing should be. Okay, Andrew. Oh, this is a four. Oh, oh. this is a four. this is like a five, six, seven. I don't know. Eight talks with dad. It's it. This is, I mean, probably one of the best books we've ever reviewed on this show. And I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, even though I had to put it down every 20 minutes, this book will change you. Like this is a book you have to kind of read, not only just because it educates you on something that I feel like a lot of folks would rather just forget about because they're just like, well, that, didn't involve me this happened this was a horrific event in history one group of people systematically murdered another group of people it's happened before it'll happen again unless we keep on revisiting these things and learning about them and trying to see that like these patterns they're slow they're incremental but they end up just being extremely deadly And I just want to say, like, that's what you have to educate. That's why you have to educate your kids. That's why you have to read Mouse. But not only that, but it's a great story between, again, a father and a son. And my heart goes out to the dad. 
I really felt for him this entire time. Like, not only was he a survivor, he was a very smart guy. He was very capable. And he just wanted to be with his son. And his son just wanted to write this book. And whatever the reason, they reconnected. And that was great. And so if you are a son or a daughter and you need something to reconnect with your parent about, maybe ask them about their lives. Maybe ask them to say, hey, can you tell me the story about you before you're gone so that I can remember that? I won't maybe write a book, but I, I need to know what your story was so that I can then tell my kids about it someday. And it's an eight. We'll just say that. <laughs> All right. Chad. As the, as the tears start falling down my it, eyes. Yikes. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I, I'll stick with the traditional four... Four talks with dad. It's just, it is such a powerful book. And there's so many different levels to it. It all starts at the beginning, whenever uh, Artie is young and he breaks his skate and his friends just keep rolling past and he's all upset. And he's telling his dad, he's like, friends, yeah, let him lock you in a room for a week with no food. Then you'll see what friends are. And like, oh my goodness. And people have asked, you know, Art Spiegelman, why did you go with mice for the, the, the symbol here for the Jews? And he talked about how you know, as a people, they were so defenseless. And and when I read this initially, you know, the Holocaust wasn't something we talked a lot about in school. It wasn't something that was top of mind or, you know, something that was explored in depth. And so I spent more time learning about the Holocaust here than I probably had in my public school education. But uh, it, it's more than that. It's not just a Holocaust story, although that's in there. And you see how crafty... Uh, Vladek has to be to survive, whether it's, you know, saying, yeah, I'm a tinsmith, even though, you know, he had just watched people. Yeah, I can make shoes. I can repair your shoes because he had seen people do it and he figured it out. But you have the relationship between the father and the son. You see the ripples of how these horrific events have impacted people and generations upon generations. And you're reminded of those things you need to remember. And you also see, you know, how hard it was. And it's not something that, you know, just when the war ended, it, it was all over and everything was fine and everything went back to the way, you know, <laughs> you, you think things should be. And it's not easy. So we, we talked earlier about, you know, should, should this book be banned? No, absolutely not. But it is, it's nice to not read it alone. It's nice to have a support group to talk about it with, you know, it's nice to be able to deal with some of these atrocities I don't know, have some other outlets there. But uh, yeah, it, it's powerful stuff. So just just know that ahead of time. Four out of four. All right. So. Well, I think I'm going to give it a 3.75. Um, oh. I think it is an incredibly powerful book. The fact that he used the comic book medium to tell this story, I think, reinforces how unreal and intense Auschwitz was. And, you know... I think it makes it easier to deconstruct, if you will, and, and understand yeah. as a human being. I mean, because I think if you think about Auschwitz and you think about everything that went on there and everything that went on with the final solution, it's hard as a human to wrap your mind around that sometimes. The amount of evil and the amount of horror that existed and and what we as humans could do to other human beings. And so I think the, the comic book medium – 
helps to tell that and and deconstruct it a bit and allow us to understand it maybe a little bit more than we could if it was just dealing with it on a human by human level where it's you know incomprehensible on the other side of things i can see some of the criticism of falling back on some stereotypical tropes i also you know i wouldn't say that his son did him dirty but vladik wasn't exactly portrayed as the most sympathetic character through parts of the story, especially in his older age. I, you know, he kind of became the curmudgeonly, almost stereotypical, like, you know, cheap penny pincher. And, uh, and I could see where that could make some people uncomfortable. All that aside, and that's probably why I, I, I don't give it a four. I think it's an incredible story. It's very powerful. The art is powerful. It's a heavy read, Andrew, as you said, you had to stop every 20 minutes or so. It's very text-based. It's very conversational-based. This is not something that you can flip by three or four pages of nothing but images. It's it's a lot of reading. But with those nice little moments of levity in between that I think makes it so that it's not so heavy and dense. So 3.75, I think. Well, so in addition to Mouse, some other recommendations and books we suggest that should also not be banned and on your reading list. So I guess we'll just go around the table like we did for the rating section. And uh, Nicole, why don't you lead us off? What book are you recommending that our listeners can read in addition to Mouse? So I am going with an additional Holocaust-themed book. I actually just picked this up on Free Comic Book Day earlier this year. Um, it wasn't free, but, I, you know, when you're there, you have to look around. And I found this and thought it looked beautiful on the cover. But uh, anyhow, it is called White Bird by R.J. Palacio. Uh, you may recognize that name. She is the author of the book Wonder, um, which was then turned into a pretty popular movie. And this is uh, a fictional story. Uh, it's actually taking one of the side characters from Wonder uh, in that whole world uh, and telling the story of his grandmother, who was uh, a Jew that was entangled in, in the Holocaust story as well. Um, it is geared towards young adults, which, like I said earlier in the show, I think we need to give our kids credit in their ability to comprehend these things on some level, you know, whether that's the Holocaust, whether it's 9-11, whether it's racism, whether it's gay rights, things like that. I think we, we need to give our kids a lot of credit for what they can process and what they might have uh, some interesting feedback on. So uh, yeah, this is, you know, very much ties into to our discussion about mouse and of course i've recommended it before and i just have to throw it in there the uh graphic novel depiction of anne frank's diary was also very well done so if that's your thing i highly suggest that all right andrew yeah uh talking about uh books at libraries and how you can find great things there uh, i found my recommendation at the library for a whole dollar yes it was in one of their like used selling books things and uh it comes from a pair that a lot of last comic shop fans should be very well versed in given how much we talk about them yes that is ed brubaker and sean phillips we've talked about criminal we've talked about reckless today i'm talking about an original graphic novel my heroes have always been junkies and it is an interesting story about two young adults 
One's named Ellie, quote unquote, and the other one's named Todd. And they meet at a rehab facility. And the story about their uh, love affair, while at the same time, the story of Ellie's troubled past, her father is in uh, a prison. And uh, I think that J.A. would love this book not only because it is crime noir and he loves crime noir, but J.A., one of the wonderful things about this is it gives you almost like a track list because like parts of this, very similar to the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, Ellie talks a lot about mixtapes that her mother left her and some of the songs that she played over and over and over again. So some songs that I've been checking out just because I read this particular book uh, include the following. Darn That Dream by Billie Holiday. Uh, Hickory Wind by Graham Parsons and Emily Harris. Between the Bars by Elliot Smith. And the interesting thing about all of these particular songs is they were all written by junkies. That's where the title of the book comes from. All her heroes were also junkies. In fact, at one point of the book, he she wants to go to the hotel in Joshua Tree where Graham Parsons died of a drug overdose. It's a very interesting character study of this young woman and her love affair with this guy at a rehab facility that I'm not going to give too much away. You just need to read this book. It's really good. And it doesn't take very long either. All right. Maybe uh, somebody has put together a Spotify playlist for the book that you can listen to while you read it. If not, maybe something uh, Last Comic Shop can look into. So, Chad, what are you recommending for us this week? So for my pick, I'm going to go back into the more traditional superhero comic verse and talk about a a story that is part of the X-Men lore. Uh, It is X-Men God Loves, Man Kills. By Chris Claremont and Brett Anderson. We know X-Men has those allusions to dealing with the civil rights movement. And in this particular story, there are some religious zealots uh, who are out trying to turn people against mutants. And it's a very powerful story. I don't want to say too much about it just because it's something that should be experienced. But like several other banned books that, uh, you know, find themselves kicking up uh, some of the hornet's nests. There is some language in there that, uh, you know, I don't know if they would use today if they were telling that story, but it was released in 1982, part of Marvel's graphic novel series. It was number five. It's just so powerful. Like Kitty pride in this story and her standing up to these politicians and these religious folks, like, ah, you could see how people can use hatred to try to turn, uh, a culture against other people. And it's just with everything we've talked about today and how heavy it is, this is, uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm running out of words. Help me out, Andy. Right now. I mean, for nothing else, you should read this book just because it's got one of the most iconic panels in all comic books where that crazy preacher is pointing at Nightcrawler and you, you dare call that thing human. Yeah. Uh, Nightcrawler, who is, Honestly, one of the nicest X-Men you would ever want to meet. He's the one that's being singled out as looking different, and so therefore he's evil and subhuman or something. It You just need to read it. It's so yeah. good. And stands up to this day, I think. For sure. All right, Jay, what do you think uh, folks should read out there? Well, I am recommending uh, the graphic 
adaptation of the 9-11 report by Sid Jacobson and Ernie Cologne. So this is based on the final report of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States, especially now that most high school students and even college students were born after this event happened. It is a approachable and easily understood way of delving into the report. And what they're able to do in the graphic novel that they couldn't do in the report so much is uh, there's a whole section that just talks about the timeline of the different airplanes and, and you know, the, the strikes on the buildings and what was going on and, and police response and military response. But they do it in a graphic layout where you can see the timeline going the whole time across like 10 pages. You know, it's it's able to what grab big chunks of information and distill them into maps and images. And it takes what is a very dry congressional report and makes it readable and dramatic and interesting and not unlike Mouse and some of the other books we've recommended, I think still timely to this day and uh, an important piece of history that should be read. And just as a comic book nerd, books like that and books like Mouse, they do things with the form of comics that you can't do in a movie. Like they play with time in such a way they lay things out, like almost like a diagram. Uh, It it really does. It's such a powerful thing. And it's something that, you know, comics are built for this kind of of thing. So great pick, great pull on that one. Yeah. And we hope you come back next week for more great pulls from the last comic shop. We promise more sound effects next week. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to all be these heavy things. And if you want some more lighter episodes, make sure that you go back and listen to some of our past ones. Like, I don't know, our, our last chicken shop challenge. That one's hilarious. Go listen to that one. That was earlier this summer. And in case you can listen to all of those at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. To the place where you can rate, review, and subscribe, and we hope that you do. Chad, where can they find us all on the social medias? Uh, at Last Comic Shop. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where you can find weekly polls. You can find what we're picking up at the comic shops. You can find factoids and Golden Age covers to, uh, to tuck in at night. And if you need help finding those, you can always go back to the podcast home base at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com, where they can find what else, J.A.? Well, they have a link to our merch store. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you can have a tote bag for much (laughs) cheaper than it costs to support your local PBS station. But you should still support your local PBS station, please. And T-shirts, mugs, all the Last Comic Shop merch that you can find on the merch store for uh, you or your favorite comic book nerd. There you go. And while we might be the Last Comic Shop podcast, we don't want to be the Last Comic Shop. So we encourage you guys to head out there uh, and check out some of the great books we talked about today. Things like Mouse from Art Spiegelman, things like White Bird, things like X-Men, God Loves Man Kills, or the 9-11 Report, a graphic adaptation by Sid Jacobson and Ernie Cologne. All that stuff and more can be found at your local comic shop, so get out there and support those folks. Yeah, and we hope that you come back to The Last Comic Shop next week. I was the host with the most, Andy Larson. I was joined by Jay Scott, Chad Smith, and the beautiful and very, very intelligent Nicole Larson. And until like next week... Sounds like me up for something. We, <laughs> <laughs> and until next week, stay safe, stay educated, and remember that if somebody tells you not to read something, you should go and read it. 
because that's <laughs> where the good stuff is. Yeah. And don't get mad at your dad when he throws your coat out. <laughs> he wanted he wants to get you that nice windbreaker. I got you it. He wants you to have nice things. That's him trying. <laughs> don't take the mamas and papas for granted. Comic Shop was a 2022 Black Angus production.